Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. Today, we sit down with Mike Heil and Jonathan Kahn to talk about the FDA, their authorities when it comes down to global epidemics, and what medical device companies can do to get products on the market in a shorter period of time so they can provide support in these particular crises. And since we've received so many requests, we are going to cover issues around the supply chain of medical device companies as a result of the coronavirus. As always, I'm trying to keep the intro short as we are going to hear each other after this. Do some housekeeping. With further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of Talking the Cure podcast. My name is Mike Heil. I'm a partner in the life sciences medical devices practice at Hogan Lovells. This is Jonathan Kahn. I am also a partner in the medical devices and technology practice group in the life sciences overall sector. Today, we're going to be talking about FDA's authorities when it comes to global pandemics and crises, uh, in particular, what medical device companies can do to get novel or new products onto the marketplace, really without having to go through the typical FDA clearance and approval requirements, if they have a novel test or if they have a new device that can treat or diagnose a particular issue leading to a pandemic or that is the result of a pandemic. Also, we'll be talking about supply chain issues and anticipated disruptions in the supply chain as a result of the current coronavirus or COVID-19 as it's being called, particularly now as we're starting to see many, many more cases in the United States. Just to put it in context, for our practice, a lot of the products that we're really talking about are the in vitro diagnostic tests that will actually diagnose coronavirus, personal protective equipment like respirators and masks and other equipment. And our clients are also, as you'll hear, very interested in protecting their supply chain and assuring that they are able to get their components and parts from overseas, as well as be able to manufacture in sufficient quantities here in the United States to cover an emergency. It also covers vaccines, which will be covered in another session of the podcast. In general, FDA's authority comes from sections 564 and 564A of the FDC Act, or Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And that was amended by the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Reauthorization Act of 2013. And in general, really what those sections do is allows for FDA to have additional authorities to sustain and strengthen preparedness for public health emergencies, such as a global pandemic, as we're anticipating and currently experiencing with the novel coronavirus. At very, very top level, it allows FDA to, to issue uh, emergency use authorizations for what they call uh, medical countermeasures, which essentially are, are medical devices that can be used to treat or diagnose or prevent serious or life-threatening diseases in the time of an emergency. FDA also has the authority to extend the expiration date of eligible medical countermeasures to waive applicable CGMP or current good manufacturing practices uh, and also allow the emergency dispensing of medical countermeasures during an actual emergency or an event. We've seen already 
that FDA has been active in the space. And, and this really comes on the tails of the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar declaring a public health emergency related to the novel coronavirus. And that occurred on February 4th, 2020. The HHS Secretary further clarified that circumstances existed for justifying authorizations of emergency uses of in vitro diagnostics for detection and diagnosis of the virus itself. So what we have seen already is FDA issuing an immediately in effect guidance, which would allow public health laboratories and, and others to create tests in vitro diagnostic tests to detect the virus. We have heard Vice President Pence and, and others in the administration say that there are limited tests available right now. So it's very important for labs to be able to create these tests and get them out into the marketplace pretty quickly. They did issue this guidance for companies to use and consider the items that will be needed to apply for and obtain an EUA. We also saw FDA issue an EUA that would allow using respirators approved by NIOSH that have not previously been used for health-related purposes, but really just for occupational settings. They can now be used for healthcare settings. So also today, FDA has noted that they are going to be suspending inspections overseas. So we're going to see a number of issues arise with respect to compliance with the FTC Act and actual inspections that may be needed to get new products onto the market. So this authority for FDA to exercise enforcement discretion is quite important at a time like this. And we'll be talking about that issue in particular when we talk about the supply chain. But for now, we'll start with uh, emergency use authorizations or EUAs that Jonathan will cover. So uh, this is actually not a new set of circumstances. In the past, FDA has addressed these issues with regard to Ebola, MERS, Zika, SARS. So in these kinds of of epidemic or pandemic situations, FDA, as you heard, has put in place a statute. Congress was fairly clear that they wanted some flexibility on behalf of the agency to address these kinds of issues. And in this context, that would be authority to, for example, authorize certain laboratories outside of the CDC, for example, to test for the coronavirus. Authority to go forward with allowing certain kinds of devices to be introduced into the marketplace outside of the normal FDA process, such as using different kinds of respirators approved by NIOSH for occupational safety and allowing them to be used for medical purposes, even though they had not previously been used for those purposes. How do you do that? You do that through the sponsor going to FDA and seeking an emergency use authorization. There is a process not unlike certain kinds of other interactions with FDA, which you would start out with a pre-submission discussion with the Food and Drug Administration to address what you as a sponsor believe is an appropriate response to an emergency. What countermeasure are you proposing and why do you believe you need an emergency use authorization to do that outside the uh, normal FDA approval processes? And what you would do is you would submit to FDA an EUA request, which would include a description of the product and its intended use. In other words, how do you believe this product is going to be used to address the emergency situation such as coronavirus? A description of FDA's approval process 
process? Is the status, is that device presently cleared or approved for another intended use, not specifically able to be used in the situation for which you're seeking the emergency use authorization? The need for the product, why is an EUA appropriate here? What is the risk benefit of that product under these circumstances? Is the benefit of using a NIOSH approved respirator, for example, is the benefit of that outweighed by the risk of not having the product go through the normal FDA review process for the medical use of a respirator and mask? under those circumstances. You would have to present to FDA what information you have that you would believe that this countermeasure that deserves emergency use treatment, is it still going to be safe to use it? Are you exacerbating the problem or are you actually benefiting the public health? So as part of the EUA request, you would demonstrate to FDA that the benefits outweigh the risk of the countermeasure that you're proposing to FDA. And in doing that, you would present safety and efficacy information, much like you would in a normal FDA submission, showing the agency that the use of that in vitro diagnostic test, for example, actually does have the sensitivity, specificity, and accuracy to detect coronavirus, for example, and that you're not going to have a lot of false positives and false negatives. That information has to be provided to the FDA before they would approve the EUA. Secondly, you would have to show that you can appropriately manufacture the device, and you don't want to have a device that you think is appropriately safe and effective, but you can't manufacture it consistently so that device A will be different than device B and different from device C so that you may get unequal and inconsistent performance of the device. You would also have to demonstrate to FDA that the quantity of the device that you can produce is appropriate for the need in the emergency and what kinds of labeling that you would place on the device so that the healthcare professionals and others can appropriately use the device. You would explain to them expiration dating, shelf life, and other information that would provide a comfort level to FDA that it is appropriate for this device to be introduced into the market outside of the normal FDA review process. The FDA will prioritize the EUA requests for those that are the most significant and greatest need, such as the in vitro diagnostic tests. Those will get the top priority. As you probably have heard, the original CDC test didn't perform up to FDA's expectations, nor up to CDC's expectations. And therefore, there was a bit of a false start uh, in the testing. And now other devices are being brought to market, as you probably have heard as well, from LabCorp and Quest and other laboratories to allow a, a more, I would say, accurate testing of the coronavirus. I'll stop there and turn it back over to Mike. Sure, and just to level set on where we are in the statute, all of what Jonathan just talked about was in 564 of the Act. 564A of the Act also allows FDA some discretion to allow products onto the marketplace that do not require an EUA or would otherwise not be qualified for an EUA. So in general, 564 allows FDA to facilitate emergency activities involving, frankly, FDA marketed or FDA cleared or approved products already. 
These would be historically FDA has used enforcement discretion to allow these sorts of products or changes to products to go out into the marketplace. But under the, the authorities that as they exist today, 564A allows medical device products that are eligible. And what do we mean by that? Eligible. They're cleared or approved by FDA. They're intended for their approved use to prevent, diagnose, or treat a disease or condition that's involving an agent or a serious life-threatening disease such as coronavirus or, or anything else during a pandemic. And then it's also intended for use during the circumstances which triggered the need in the first place. So obviously here in this case would be for the COVID-19. Under this authority, in general, FDA can extend expiration dates uh, of, of products. So if, if the extension is supported by appropriate scientific data or any validation that the company has, anything like that will allow FDA to extend the expiration dating. This would be applicable for both drugs and, and devices. The other thing that FDA can do is authorize deviations from the GMP requirements for, so for devices, it would be the quality system regulation or QSR. Products that receive a waiver from GMPs will not be considered adulterated or misbranded under the act. So even though they don't meet perhaps all the specifications or may not have been manufactured, in a GMP-controlled environment, if allowed and the GMP waiver is granted, those products can go out into the marketplace without the risk of FDA seeking enforcement for the entry of an adulterated or misbranded product. In general, FDA's policy is, is that they will be exercising these authorities on a case-by-case -case basis, influenced by the exigencies of the situation. So it's not going to be a blanket authorization to not produce product under GMP, but again, a case-by-case risk-based analysis and, and risk-benefit analysis to justify that use. I'm going to pivot now to the supply chain issues and then apply how the provisions in 564A may be helpful in getting product out into the marketplace. There have been many reports coming out about supply chain disruptions as a result of coronavirus and see these as a result of plants shutting down or the inability of workers to show up. Uh, we've heard reports that every few hours or so at some facilities in China, for example, they're taking temperatures of the employees and the workers. And if there's one person that has a temperature, they're shutting the facility down. So we are hearing of, of stories like that, the inability to get people into the facility to manufacture and, and other supply chain issues such as delays in shipping as the number of flights decrease back and forth between countries. We're going to start to see delays there. As facilities shut down, it obviously will impede the ability of finished device manufacturers to receive components that are necessary for the production of their products, or even for contract manufacturers in targeted areas or particularly hit areas to be able to produce products. So it may force companies to see if they can move production to a new facility. So right now, just focusing on China, that this is where we're seeing the most impact, but obviously this is anticipated to move to other areas. Right now, China is the fourth largest supplier of the medical device industry, and they're providing components and finished devices. The regulatory implications here is if there is a supply chain issue, medical device manufacturers are not required to report these issues to the FDA. This is different from the authorities that, that FDA has on the drug side, where pharma suppliers are in fact required to report supply chain disruptions or anticipated supply chain disruptions. That authority does not exist on the medical device side. 
FDA has asked for this authority. They've done so as recently as their 2021 budget request to Congress. And they have said several times, including the actions that they've identified to take for coronavirus, that they are going to continue to seek this authority for devices. Right now, what they're asking for is companies to voluntarily notify the agency if they have supply chain disruptions or anticipate supply chain disruptions. So right now, it's critically important for companies to be prepared for this. Again, coronavirus is just starting to spread across the United States. We're going to start to see the impact for U.S. suppliers as well as the the ongoing challenges with global suppliers. So what are some things that companies can do to plan for potential shortages? First and foremost, reach out to your suppliers to get an understanding of the current or anticipated supply issues that they have and what their projections are. Are they going to be able to continue to fulfill orders? Are they already having employees not show up for work? Is their workforce impacted? Are they going to have shutdowns? Are they going to have work from home, which which really wouldn't make sense for a production operation? But if they're going to be shuttering a facility, How long is that going to occur and when do they anticipate coming back online? If there are sufficient supplies and inventory right now, place orders right now outside the normal chains of the supply or or your schedule. If they have a stockpile sitting in their warehouse, see if you can order them now and get them to your facility so that your supply and your production is is not going to be disrupted. Uh, And if you can stockpile inventory in anticipation of of shortages, that's something else that you may want to consider. Do you have the warehouse space available to do this? Do you have the warehouse personnel that are going to be on site and available to do this? When needed, consider if there are alternative suppliers. If you have turnkey operations or off-the-shelf components, you can pivot to something else, then consider doing that. Qualify those alternative suppliers bring them on board as a supplier for your product. Consider having contract manufacturers also stockpile any inventory or if they anticipate shutdowns, see if they can work extra hours or manufacture additional units in anticipation of that work stoppage or that shutdown. Again, consider if you can establish secondary production lines in different geographies. So if all of those things should be taken into account as part of a contingency plan. For PMA products, if we need to bring a new facility on board, what are we going to do there? If it's a critical component or if it's a contract manufacturing operation, that's going to require a PMA supplement, which for a site change is typically a 180-day site change supplement. So what plans do we have in place for that, assuming we have to go through that process? And I'll talk about that in a moment, different options that that are available to, to manufacturers to expedite that process. And then importantly, evaluate your contracts to see what recourse you have for any failure to deliver or what potential financial impact may be for suppliers who fail to deliver. Most contracts will have a force majeure provision that can be invoked during a global pandemic if needed. So in general, if you get to the point where you need to bring a new supplier on board, whether it be a component supplier or bring on a new contract manufacturer in a different facility, different geography, what are the main things that you have to do? This is covered by FDA's quality system regulation or QSR under the purchasing control provisions. Under that, you should have procedures in place already to bring suppliers on board, whether they're being brought on for the first time, whether the new suppliers that are coming on board, all of this should be prescribed in an SOP. Most manufacturers are going to have those in place already, but I'll just quickly go through the salient requirements. For initial qualification, it would be determining 
what requirements do we need these new suppliers to meet? It's going to depend on the risk of the component or the product being provided. If they're merely providing off-the-shelf type products that are low risk, we may not need to do much at all to bring them on board. It may just be a, a supplier qualification form, a survey, something like that. The more critical the supplier, the more control we're going to have to put in place. And it may require an on-site inspection to make sure that that facility has a sufficient quality management system in place, that they can meet our specifications, including our quality requirements. The second will be the ongoing controls. What ongoing controls are we going to exercise over these suppliers? And so once they're qualified, what are the things that we are going to require them to do? Are we going to require them to do a 100% inspection of units before they give them to us? Are we going to require them to give us a certificate of analysis or a certificate of conformity to ensure that the products meet the specification? Are we going to have incoming controls at our facility where we're going to test products as they're coming in the door to make sure that they meet our specifications. And then the last part will be the purchasing data, which is really what are our specifications? What are the things that we need them to do to meet our specifications, whether it's a drawing or whether it's, it's a spec sheet or anything like that? That is the information that we're going to be providing to them uh, to, to meet. I'll just make uh, two points. First, this doesn't just apply to supply chains involving China. Mike and I are working on one for one of our clients right now with a, light, a device that is a life-saving device that's manufactured mostly in Mexico with sub-suppliers in California. They're very much fearful that if there is a supply chain problem there, they won't be able to get components. It's a class three device. They couldn't wait six months to get through and get authorization for a new supplier. So we're working with them as to whether an emergency use authorization to actually validate their suppliers in Europe that they use different component suppliers there that uh, have been uh, through the quality system under the European authorities. Can we get FDA to approve, for example, an emergency use authorization for those manufacturers on a shorter basis than would be required under a PMA supplement? And then just to go back with regard to EUAs, I'll just make two other points. We didn't mention it. We do have two very detailed statements and alerts under Engage on our website that goes through both the supply chain and the EUA processes for coronavirus. Secondly, I would mention the FDA does have a very detailed guidance on EUAs that was issued in January of 2017 that goes through a lot of the details of what I've said, including you know what a company would have to prove that a product may be effective, for example, if an EUA is granted and that there is no adequate or approved or cleared device that can be used as an alternative to the sponsor's EUA device. So all of that is covered in the January 2017 guidance document. Turn it back over to Mike. Sure. And John tees up a very interesting point is, is how do these supply chain issues and the need to onboard new suppliers, how is that covered by FDA's authority? And it really boils down into two different categories. As I said before, the products for which they will grant waivers for GMP or shelf life extensions really apply to those products that are essential or that are necessary 
for treating the issue at large, so the pandemic in this case. But what about those other companies that manufacture life-sustaining, life-supporting products, which may not be directly related to treating coronavirus, for example, but in this case, it may be for treating cancer patients or other diseases that, which may not be directly affected by coronavirus. So what authorities exist for those? I think the same with the EUA, it is imperative for companies to reach out to FDA and talk about these supply chain issues and what options are available. You don't want to have something brought before FDA that's going to require a site change supplement with a 180-day review and a potential on-site inspection in order to onboard a new supplier. There have to be alternatives here, not just for those products that are essential for treating coronavirus or diagnosing coronavirus, but also for those that are life-sustaining, life-supporting devices for, for other people. So we don't want to create a crisis by trying to resolve a crisis. So again, reaching out to FDA is very important. FDA does have broad discretion in what it do and, and whether it's going to require an on-site inspection or really just rely on a desk review uh, of, of a submission for, for a new product or I mean, for a new facility to manufacture a product. Okay. I would just add that uh, one of the keys here is to keep your eye on what FDA, CDC, and the government is doing. It is evolving day by day. FDA just announced this week that they are no longer going to be doing foreign inspections because of the coronavirus pandemic. I think it really is a pandemic now. And therefore, if you keep your ear to the ground, you will be able to move more quickly as the issues change. And then just lastly, I would say that the Food and Drug Administration has been attempting to do a good job. Scott Gottlieb, the last FDA commissioner, has heavily criticized FDA due to, uh, based upon their slowness in granting uh, approvals for new IVD tests to come on board. So all I would say is that this is an evolving situation. EUAs and supply chain issues are going to continue. It is something which the device industry is well aware of and has been uh, in contact with people both at the White House as well as at HHS and CDC with regard to how to address these issues. Right. We'll just wrap up by saying that the current circumstances with the existing authorities it's really going to require some creativity and flexibility by regulators in general, particularly to resolve the supply chain issues and to grant EUAs. And we know that FDA is moving efficiently in granting discussions for pre-EUA discussions, also for supply chain issues, for bringing on new suppliers, particularly for class three devices. Options would be, for example, instead of a 180-day site change supplement, to do so through a 30-day notice or to prioritize and, and, and have an expedited review of a product submission to get that new facility on board. So there is great opportunity here to resolve the issue and just, again, encourage everybody to keep an eye out for proclamations, for guidances, for statements coming out of the FDA, the CDC. You could also keep track of our website. We're monitoring these things closely and, and putting things out through our Engage platform just to make sure that the word is getting out to everybody who's on our distribution list. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Mike and or Jonathan, reach out via HopeLevels.com. You can find the link to our Engage platform for further information in the description. 
In addition, so you are not missing out on any information regarding other industry developments as well as our activities in this sector, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Leave a like, leave a comment. Before we end this episode, I wanted to ask you to rate and subscribe to this podcast so we know that we are on the right path. Thank you for tuning in. We are going to return with more in about two weeks. So please join us again when we're talking The Cure.